Please sit. For our time of scripture reading this morning, we are reading from Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 can be found in your pew Bible on page 869. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. May God bless the reading of his word. So I had hoped that we'd get through the service without acknowledging the elephant in the room. And in fact, I go to the worship leader to tell him no reference to my departure, or this being my last week. And I don't want him to think I singled him out. I just forgot to write to everybody else. (laughs) Now, my wife and I walk around the house, and every so often we'll do something that shows a lapse in concentration, and we'll... The other one will say, oh, there's a sign, you know, there's a sign it's time to retire, you know, before you lose it all. So there you go. Uh, anyway, we're delighted to have you sharing Megan and Gary and, and all that. Now, if you look in scripture, when people leave, there's a whole genre that arose through scripture you can trace throughout the whole Bible called farewell discourse. And so most of us are familiar with Jesus' farewell discourse, but it was the latest in a long train of such 
speeches. Jacob gave a farewell discourse. Joseph gave one. Moses gave one. Joshua gave one. Jesus gave one. The Apostle Paul gave one. But they were dying. I'm only retiring. (laughs) Some of us hope. Uh, So... (laughs) So, uh, no farewell discourse. Instead... Let's finish as we began by studying scripture together. And in fact, it works out really well because today is the last sermon in a two-year series. Uh, we, you know, we, we began two years ago in September, we began looking at the, the, the story arc of scripture. You know, the whole Bible from beginning to end is telling only one single story. And we get so caught up in the detail or, or, or no, you know, we only so recently begun thinking about the big story. So we miss what's really going on in scripture, the overall thread. But, but it begins in, in Genesis, not so much with creation. The creation account there is there only to tell us God made a beautiful world. And the whole rest of the Bible explains what happened to that beautiful world and what God intends to do about it. So we look throughout the whole Old Testament. God steps in to redeem this world, to correct it, to bring it back to its original pristine state. And then man keeps following it up. He made three promises to Abraham. He chose to work through Abraham. He was going to work through Israel. He made three promises and said, all you need to do is keep in relationship with me. And he promised Abraham descendants. And he promised Abraham land. And he said to Abraham, the third promise was, it's not really all about you and your family. Descendants and land, but then you'll bless the nations. And every so often, time after time, Israel just turned away from God. And so instead of God's blessings, they experienced judgment. And it got so bleak that in the latter parts of the Old Testament, God has said, it's going to take a massive reconstruction of the human race and of all of nature. And that would be brought about by this Messiah who would come. And in time, Jesus came. But the odd thing, Jesus came and pretty much everything went on just the same. So the New Testament is explaining what difference does it make? Well, why haven't the promises of God been fully fulfilled in Jesus? What difference does it make? And, and it, if, if the promises haven't been fulfilled, entirely fulfilled, what difference does it make that Jesus has come? And the, the New Testament talks about the first coming of Jesus when he began to reconstruct the world and human nature. And then it talks about the end when he'll bring it all to completion. And Revelation is that last little bit of end piece there talks about what Jesus is going to do to reconstruct his world. But before we go there, let me tell a story that I've told before about a friend of mine, and I mean, I've told the story before, but this is a sequel, and many of you weren't here probably when I told the story last. So as a way into the passage, let me tell you about Ray. Um, in the late 70s, I mean, and I were studying theology in Australia, that's how we met. Ray was one of our classmates. He was an engineer. But all he really had a passion for was to be a missionary. 
And he, he, we were both Baptists studying in an Anglican school. We were both Caucasians dating Asians. One thing or another, we were kind of bonded. In, and, you know, Ray overlapped with us for the several years that he studied. And his goal was to be a missionary. Single-minded focus. He wanted to go overseas. Uh, and he started to join OMF at the same time we were joining OMF, so we went through that process together. They put you through psychological testing, and the psychological testing revealed that Ray was so shy. And not, not relationally with me and Irene, but, but in a group setting, Ray was so shy, they said, we don't think you can be a missionary. And they, so they said, well, we're going to hold you back in the, U, in the U, uh, Australia for a year or two. You'll be a pastor. If you can't be a pastor, you can't be a missionary. So we're going to st- keep you back, make you be a pastor for a couple years. Then they gave him language tests to see about aptitude for t- learning a new language. And Ray was an excellent engineer, but boy, he flunked that language test, language aptitude test. He did so badly that they sent the results to Europe for evaluation, can this fellow ever learn a language? And they came back with the evaluation was, well, maybe. So eventually he did two years of pastoral ministry and then he went off to, with OMF. And they gave him the easiest language to learn. They assigned him to Malaysia so that he could learn Malay. He wouldn't have to learn Chinese. <laughs> you don't know how hard that is for some of us. And he flunked language school, so they put him through a second time in the easiest language. But he would not be deterred. He, all he wanted to do was be a missionary and tell people about the Jesus, the way Jesus had changed his life, to tell other people how Jesus could change their lives. Then, because Malaysia is a Muslim country, he was actually serving in East Malaysia where, where the local government was not Muslim. But the central government took it over, and so his visa was threatened. He barely got a renewal of his visa for one year, and he thought, I better start training somebody to do my job because I'm going to leave soon. Then he found that his trainee was stealing, and he had to fire the guy, which jeopardized his entire ministry for the future. He brought in a new trainee, and the new trainee, after serving for a while, said, look, I want to get married. I need to buy a cow. I don't have enough money at this job to buy a cow in order to get married. And so he quit the job, and, and Ray was back where he started from. Then, somewhere along the line, he started uh, noticing blood from his stool, or blood with his stool. And the doctor said, the OMF doctor said, look, you've got to get this checked out. But he let it go because he's out in the countryside, out in what they call the Ulus. He's out, I mean, he's out in the village. They didn't even have run, running water. Remember, he's an engineer, so he's the first guy that showed them how to hook up the stream so that they could have a shower that came out of the shower head above them. And they'd all go in there and play with the shower just because they'd never seen water flowing like that out of a pipe. So he kind of ignored it. And then eventually, he couldn't ignore it anymore, and it turned out that he had some kind of uh, intestinal cancer. And he came to Singapore for treatment. And so his wife got permission for me to visit him. And the, the treatment, the cancer was advanced, and there was a threat, obviously. Cancer scares you anyway. There was a threat that he was going to die. So he asked me, he said, look, I know the Bible tells us that Satan is defeated. 
But why does it look like he's winning so often? Now, I'm a New Testament professor. I'm supposed to know the answer to these things. And I, I had no idea, so I told him, I don't know. But I said, if you want to you know, read about how so strong Satan is, Revelation's a good place to begin. So he read Revelation that night. When I came back to visit him the next day, he basically... Excuse me. He basically gave me the uh, content of this sermon. And the major thrust of it. He'd found something that I had not realized before. Revelation. Oh, and there's a sequel to that, actually. There's a sequel to that story, I should tell you. So lately, I was back in touch with Ray. We had fallen out of touch for a while. And then uh, I looked him up online. And the way I found him was somebody online had written a review of his brilliant engineering skills in solving software problems. So I tracked him down through that. And he's, uh, having gone back to Australia, you know, first he survived, he got free medical care, fortunately. He survived, he'll never be without pain again. But then he served as a pastor. And after a few years as a pastor, he got fired by the church because he wasn't really sociable enough. And then he got hired by another church to be senior pastor. Now, I knew all that background, but this time when he wrote to me, he said, well, he said he's decided that he makes a good engineer. And he was a lousy pastor and a worse senior pastor. Which raises some pretty significant questions. Because I don't know anyone. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people, but I don't know anyone in my friendship network that gave so much in order to, with a single-minded intent to serve Jesus, and had it backfire so badly. So he'll never be without pain. His kids have had a rough time through the whole process. He can't be in ministry. He can't be a missionary. And basically, he can't have any more treatment if the cancer comes back, because the treatment almost killed him, so he can't have any more. So it raises, urgently it raises the question, if Satan is defeated, why is he still so powerful? If Jesus is victorious, as we sang, why is ministry sometimes so hard? So let's look at the book of Revelation together. A little bit of background. We want to know, first of all, about Revelation you need to know something about the historical background, and you need to know something about the literary background, just briefly on both, maybe. The original occasion. Revelation was written to a this church that was in peril in, in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. The church was in peril because of persecution from the emperor. Emperor big, huge, strong. Church, just a few people. Two of them had been killed already. Two of their leaders had been killed. The rest were facing the prospect that they too would die. And that threat was making them want to backtrack. Maybe they don't have to be quite so vocal. Maybe they don't have to talk about Jesus so much. Maybe they can just kind of duck back, duck back in a synagogue, duck back underground. They don't, shouldn't have to face death. 
The other part of the context you need to know about Revelation, because everybody gets it wrong. Well, not everybody, but most popularly, we, all the favorite books get, get it wrong. Revelation is in a particular literary context called apocalyptic. And people read it like it's a, a straightforward narrative of what's going to happen at the end of time. It's not trying to tell us that. Apocalyptic was a genre that had been, it's like vampire stories, genre, okay? Apocalyptic, vampire stories aren't trying to tell you about real live people that die and then get up out of the ground again. Apocalyptic had been around for three or four hundred years. It was a common literary genre. Typically, when Jews were persecuted, you're like, apocalyptic began at least as early as the book of Daniel. When Jews are persecuted, they're asking, how can God, you know, where is God in the midst of this? How can God allow this to happen to us? What, what's, how do we explain this? If God is sovereign, why are we suffering? And the elder John wrote Revelation in the same pattern, uh, follow, quotes Daniel throughout the book of Revelation, the same pattern of apocalyptic literature. It's trying to address the question, of where is God in times when life is really hard, in times of persecution, where is God? An apocalyptic will typically portray what's going on, the events of time and history, in, in cosmic terms, as a battle between the forces of good and evil over all of nature, over all of the heavens and the earth. Apocalyptic, think of the Vietnam War movie, those of you who are old enough to have seen this movie, Apocalypse Now. That movie was not about the end time, that movie was about the Vietnam War and the brutality of it. And it used apocalyptic language to capture the brutality of the war. And this is what Revelation does, it uses this cosmic language, this battle between God and the forces of evil to explain what's happening on earth between the church and the people of God. And into that context where the people of God are suffering, here is the message of the New Testament, of Revelation. It's a message in two parts. First, Jesus is victor. Jesus won. And second, Jesus becomes our model for how we're going to win. So look at first how Jesus won. It's from the text that we read today. How Jesus won. Notice, one of the elders said to me, he had his, the elder John has this vision of heaven, and the elder says to me, don't weep. See, look. He says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. The lion has conquered. Chapter 5. Jesus has won. Verse 6. How did Jesus win? Then I, I looked up to see the lion that had triumphed, and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. This is the core of Revelation's response to the suffering of his people. Jesus has won, not the emperor. But Jesus won by dying, not by... Jesus defeated the emperor. He defeated Satan by dying, not by military victory. And then as a result, the final consequences of Jesus' victory, the final consequences for Jesus are twofold. First, his ministry was effective, not in spite of him dying, but his ministry was effective because he died. Because you were slain, with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
Jesus' death, suffering and death, was crucial for his victory. It was the means to his victory. And then something else happened because of Jesus' death. Something else happened for him. And all the angels in heaven are singing around the throne, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Why is he worthy? He's worthy because he was slain, to receive honor and glory and power. So this is the premise of Revelation. Speaking to a church that's struggling and facing persecution, this is the premise. Remember Jesus. He didn't lose. He won. You want to win? Remember Jesus. He won by suffering and dying. But as a result of winning, the purposes of God have been advanced, and he saved people all around the world. And the result of winning, the result of dying, he's glorified and honored in heaven. So then Revelation proceeds to apply that to us. If this is how Jesus was victor, how would we be victors? Chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. You remember the story of the seven seals. And when the angel had opened the fifth seal, I, John, the author of Revelation, saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Same way Jesus won, we win. They're won by being slain. Because they were slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Chapter 12, verse 12 says the same thing. They triumphed over him. How? By the death of Jesus and by their own deaths they triumphed. What are the consequences for them? Short-term consequences is this. And these are the verses that struck Ray as he read Revelation that night in the hospital bed. If anyone is to go into captivity, if God's sovereignty has decreed that they'll go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Chapter 14, 12, the same theme again. This calls for patient endurance on the part of God's people. God keeps his commands. I mean, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and can remain faithful to Jesus. The short-term consequence of Jesus' method of victory is only this. We, like him, must be faithful. We, like him, must endure. But that's not the final story. Because the final story comes in chapter 21, verse 7. The final episode in this story. Because those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And, and John picks a, paints a picture of a restored heaven and earth, a heavenly heaven and earth. And he says, those who are victorious will inherit all this. Most of all, they will, I will be their God and they will be my children. What does this say to us today? Who First of all, it doesn't speak primarily to us. Let's always acknowledge this. It speaks primarily to the suffering church. You know, we can look at the church in countries where Christianity is illegal and we can think, how are they ever going to survive? Look at the suffering they're going through. Look at the persecution. God's message is particularly primarily to the suffering church. You win by losing. Just like Jesus 
won by losing. God will be faithful. His promises will be fulfilled. His purposes will be fulfilled. God will honor you, and God will honor your death, he says to the suffering church. What does he say to the non-suffering church, to people like us? You know, we need to learn a lesson here. Very important, before we get to Ray's case, very important for us to learn. You know, when, when the Soviet Union fell and broke up into all these disparate countries, American mega churches, American churches as a whole, everybody that could flooded into the Soviet Union to help them learn how to do church. Now, people try to, you know, large church, well, pastors, American pastors, love going to China to train the Chinese pastors in how to do church. Are we missing something? Revelation says, if the borders are open, we should be importing pastors who've suffered or churches that have suffered to come to us and tell us how to do church. We have our big buildings, we have our large crowds, we have our huge budgets. But that's not how God measures victory. At least it's not how Revelation measures victory. Revelation measures victory by persevering through suffering and honoring Christ through death. Now, one of the great privileges we have as an English congregation is we're associated with a Chinese congregation. And you realize that we have people, well, our founding pastor endured labor camp when he was betrayed by a colleague. We have people in the Chinese ministry who could not go to university because their parents were labeled counter-revolutionaries during the Cultural Revolution. And yet, even though they couldn't go to university, eventually they managed to get PhDs. This is an extraordinary privilege we have because of our association with CM. We just need to figure, we need, just need to find out that we need to hear the stories. So, so the Word of God speaks to the suffering church. So the Word of God speaks to the non-suffering church and urges us to have humility. Let us learn from those who've endured more for the sake of Christ. But the Word of God also speaks to us as individuals, to my friend Ray or others. We can take the story of Revelation writ large and apply it to private lives also, personal lives. And it says a couple of things. It tells us that we don't know the, the end of this story. Is Ray a failure as a pastor and as a missionary? My response to him was, it's too early to make that call. Now, maybe. Maybe God's call was for him to be an engineer all his life, and a spectacular engineer because he's gifted at it. Maybe that's his call, and that's why we have this focus, because this congregational focus that Brian's leading us in. Because we don't want people to assume that if they're good, if they're really good at something, that God wants them to drop it and go into vocational ministry. Maybe Ray should have stayed in his vocation the whole time. But I don't think so. I can't say ultimately. But what Revelation will tell us is that his struggles on the field and his struggles in the church have no bearing on whether or not he's a failure or a success. Revelation, they failed. And God said, 
they conquered. I'll stick in one more story. When I became a Christian in 1971, I joined a fellowship group at the boarding school I was part of, and Dave was one, one year behind me. Dave was a guy in the fellowship group. Converted longer than I was. He decided, we were some boarding school, uh, elite school, he decided to forget the career path and went into Bible college. Then he went into seminary at Gordon-Conwell, and he had this vision that he would join this ministry that reach out, reaches out to prep school students like we were. It is a ministry that had strengthened him, and he decided to give his life to developing that sort of ministry. And so the prep school ministry, good Christian people, said to him, Look, these are elite schools. They don't care if you go to Gordon-Conwell. They don't, they, they don't care. He said, If you really want to join this ministry, you need to drop out. You need to transfer from Gordon down to Yale. So he transferred from Gordon to Yale. It wasn't the kind of environment he liked. He was Pentecostal, Yale, not even close. And, you know, and uh, he graduated Yale Divinity School, and he went into the ministry. Now, he, Pentecostal, he was sure he'd heard the call of God. Five years later, he'd washed out. And it was a terrible experience, and ultimately he quit. Now, I renewed acquaintance with him because when my son was applying to, was applying to engineering school, he was now working as one of the Cisco support at the engineering school. So I went out and caught up with him while my son was doing his interviews. And you could tell that he viewed that as just a silly mistake from an idealistic kid. Like the whole thing was, was dumb. He took a risk and, and it failed. And he assumed that he was a failure. Read that narrative in the light of Revelation. First of all, it's too early to know. We're only going to find out at the end of time. And secondly, God never disregards the risks his people take in his name and the sufferings they experience on his behalf. Sometimes... These are the very things that win the victory. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and for your will to be done in our lives. May we, through lives of comfort and ease or through lives of struggle and suffering, may we bring honor to your name and advance your cause. In Jesus' name, amen.